Okay, good morning. I'm Katie Famusa, and um, thank you so much for having me. I'll be reviewing our Wellspring disciplines. So in preparing for today, I went through my binder and just kind of started cruising through the past lessons. And um, it was like I was shepherding my heart to God's word as I was doing that, which was so good, and simultaneously preparing to chat with you this morning. And I went through my binder and I just looked for anything in the past lessons that I'd starred, highlighted, um, and I found things that just significantly stood out to me in the lessons. And so I gathered those for today. So that's kind of what we're going to do is go past D1, D2, D3 by looking back a little bit. So, um, man, it was really an enjoyable experience. Um, and it just reminded me that a lot of me being faithful is just returning, returning to God's word, returning to what I already have been taught by y'all. Thank you. <laughs> um, and so that was um, really just fun. I, I would encourage you to do that. If you haven't done that recently, just kind of go back and just maybe pick one lesson. Look at, just look at your, you know, asterisks and see what were those things that the Lord was teaching you um, a few months ago? Because somehow we forget. So we need to remember, we need to return. And um, I think it's going to be fun for you. Maybe some of the things I share will be things that you had highlighted too. I don't know. We'll find out. So um, we're going to start with D1. So grab your binder, look at the back. Amy, are you able to read that D1 for us? Okay, thank you. Thank you. Okay. Do you remember the uh, lesson on honoring the Lord in our Bible reading? Does that ring a bell? Okay, so here were some of the bullet points that may sound familiar. Number one, agree with God about his nature, about his word, about my nature. Um, I, I love, I always need to hear this. Expect a single meaning from a passage and make sure to observe my passage before I interpret it. <laughs> Do you recall the importance in the same lesson, the importance of agreeing with God about my purpose for even reading his word? And one of those purposes was simply to bring glory to God in reading and knowing his word. Philippians 1, 9 through 11 was part of the scripture we shared. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ. And here's kind of the aim of, of knowing God's word to the glory and praise of God. So when we are in God's word and we're using God's word through the day to shepherd our hearts, um, I just need to remember that the, the point is that God gets glory in that. Not that I get better at anything. All right. How about the lesson on shepherding our heart throughout the day? Okay, this, just seeing this, doesn't this help, just remembering this? <laughs> this is always just good to look at these spirals and to be remembered. Um, one thing that was quoted was, an idol is anything that I want more than God, anything that I rely on more than God, anything I look to for greater fulfillment than God. Um, does that, like, these things kind of, oh yeah. I remember. Okay, so Philippians 4.19, and God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory to, in Jesus Christ. Or sorry, in Christ Jesus. All right. Um, and then one other quote I love, still on the discipline one, 
when we studied our actual Wellspring verse, we, um, we learned, and we got a quote from John Flavel, um, that the heart of man is his worst part before salvation and his best part after it. So, and I just, I, I just need to hear that again. So, um, let's move on to discipline two. Jan, do you want to read discipline two for me? <laughs> yeah, you want to read it? No. She's like, no. Okay. All right. And, okay. Thank you. <laughs> Next slide. Okay, so we had a lesson in D2 where we studied um, and touched on <laughs> unconditional love in relation to this. And this was just like one of the highlights. Our speaker on that day said, I shouldn't make the people in my home earn my affection. I should lavish God's grace on them. And this related to Psalm 103. He has not, not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. Just love hearing that. Um, additionally, within D2, there was um, another nugget with a big star. My faithfulness to Christ is the most loving thing that I can do for my household. Does that sound familiar? I just That was really helpful for me. Um, and I can run to scripture like Psalm 78. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know. All right. Um, also, this year I needed to be remembered, uh, reminded that a woman's faithfulness in her home influences others' perception of God's word. And um, we're looking at Titus 2 for that. So that was... Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior. And we kind of had a list of things beyond that. So that the word of God will not be dishonored. So I'll read that, the whole scripture. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious, malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. All right, so that's all in D2. Last one, D3. Anybody want to read D3 for me? Thank you, Karina. Okay. Okay. So I did not have to flip very far back to get to D3. Um, which was just two weeks ago when we talked about hospitality. And who knew that there was eight and a half pages of scripture on hospitality? I, I had no idea. Um, and just this is a great reminder in 1 Peter 4, 8 through 10. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint as each one of us has received a special gift, employing it, in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. It was so amazing to learn a couple weeks ago about how these commands and scripture um, related to hospitality were so connected with the phrasing of brothers and sisters and the body of Christ. Um, it was really an awesome way to consider how I need to love much better um, and being ready to care well for others and spend a lot more time 
and a lot more effort. And I'm loving um, the people in the church. Um, so in summary, for today's Wellspring Disciplines, the takeaway is just to constantly to go back to looking at biblical truths, looking at scripture and these great um, lessons that we've had and renewing our mind on those, staying focused on our ultimate purpose, which is to love the Lord and to serve him. So I hope today was helpful reminders and I look forward to hearing from Sarah. So thank you guys. It's like Wellspring Cliff Notes. You know, you need to review your year. Just go back and listen to those disciplines. That was really, that was great. Yeah. Makes me bummed I haven't been here every week. Okay, so let me get organized here. I'd just like to pray again, if you would pray with me. Heavenly Father, how great you are. Lord, it's beyond impressive that you would reveal yourself. Um, You had no need to reveal yourself, but then on top of that, you've revealed yourself to rebels or such foolish, prideful, creatures, Lord, that you created in your own image to display things about yourself, that, um, Lord, we have, you know, you know our heart is just only evil all the time until you rescue us and place us in your son Christ. Lord, I'm so grateful for your great salvation through Jesus. Thank you for the power of the blood of Christ that satisfies all of your wrath against all of our sin. And that absolutely nothing can separate us from your love for us in Christ Jesus. Thank you that you've poured your love into our hearts through your Holy Spirit. Lord, what a, what a joy and a blessing that you would rescue us and make us your own and then knit us together as a body. Lord, that we would be able to come together as women and in a corporate way live out what you have instructed in Titus 2. Oh, Lord... Um, even though you are so gracious to use people, to use us, to allow us to come alongside one another, Lord, we know that the power is with you. The power is in your word and the power is in your spirit. And so I pray that you would be pleased to work by your power in our hearts. Lord, help us to be more like Christ because of our time together around your word. I pray that you would open our eyes to ways that we're blind to our own sin, to things in our lives that are worldly, that we may be completely uh, unaware of, or, or just ways that you have for us as godly women, as biblical women, to practice our faith that um, we just ha- had no idea. So Lord, I pray that our hearts would be teachable and soft desiring above all to live out the great salvation you've given us through the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, today we're going to begin with what sadly has become a controversial question, and that is, what does it mean to be a woman? 
But in reality, that question begs a much bigger question. Who has the right to define womanhood? And there is a deep divide between the truth of God's word and the voice of our culture when it comes to the answer. The Bible makes it clear that God is the creator. And as the creator, everything is his. And he is the rightful and righteous ruler of all things. He's the only one who can rightly define who we are as his creations because he is the one who made us. But even as the followers of Christ who believe God's word, there is a good chance that at least some of our thinking about womanhood has been influenced by our culture. Our culture has a lot to say about gender, and it has become a self-appointed authority on everything gender-related. It's in social media, news, stores, advertising, you know, um, even schools and books and clubs aimed at indoctrinating children with an anti-God, anti-biblical understanding of who they are and what it means to be a boy or a girl. Whether it's a message of equal rights and men bashing or of unlimited freedom to express sensuality and sexuality and gender identity, or an all-out assault that aims to just blur and erase all gender distinctions. All of it is a grasp for absolute personal autonomy. And make no mistake, it is a full-on rebellion against God. But as believers, we must remember that we too were completely rebellious in any number of ways until God gave us new life in Christ. We were desperate to be taken out of darkness and to be brought into his glorious light. And that's exactly what God mercifully does for each believer. When God causes a rebel to be born again and to turn to Christ in repentance and faith, he gives her a heart to submit to him and his word. And his word transforms how she thinks and how she lives. So for those of us who are indeed blood brought, excuse me, I can't say that, blood bought followers of Jesus, let's cultivate a heart of love and prayer for others, asking for God's mercy that the lost would repent and come to saving faith in Christ. We need to understand what God says, so not so that we feel self-justified and look at the world with derision and self-righteousness. That is not the point of today's lesson at all. Please do not go to your discussion groups and just talk about how awful the world is, because we all know that. We need to understand what God says so that we will live humbly according to his design. When we do that, we can help others understand and offer hope to the confused, the deceived, or even those who are rebelling against who God made them to be. This whole movement, though seeking personal happiness, is instead leading in its wake a vast number of broken, hurting, and hopeless souls. The point of embracing biblical womanhood is to put God himself on display. That's the hope that we get to offer, reconciliation to the one who has made us, who has made us his own through his son, Jesus Christ. It didn't used to be that children or others in the church needed to be instructed in what a boy is or what a girl is and how we know that. 
but we can no longer take that for granted. And so we get to serve others and help them understand the truth of who God made us to be. And we can do it without apology, even though we may be persecuted for speaking the truth at, at times, but we do it. We do, we speak the truth in love um, because we can know that we know the reliability of God's word. This is certainly not politically correct, but that is okay because we need to be biblically correct. Now, Grace Bible Church has eight biblical convictions. This lesson is based on number seven. You have it at the bottom of the first page of your worksheet. Biblical manhood and womanhood in our church. As we survey scripture, we see God establishing two realities for men and women. Spiritual equality before God and others, and role differentiation for men and women in the church and in the home. There are distinctions and differences between men and women and their roles. This biblical view of manhood and womanhood is called the complementarian view of men and women. Within our spiritual equality, men and women complement one another through our different roles. These two realities are inseparable throughout God's word. This has been God's design from the very beginning. This is what he reveals in his word, and this is why we embrace it. We don't look to our culture or to our feelings, experiences, our own opinions. God's word warns us against trusting our own understanding or following our own thoughts. Rather, we humbly embrace what God has given us to make him more visible in this world. So for our lesson, we will trace this pattern of spiritual equality and role differentiation through the Old and New Testaments in order to answer the question, what is biblical womanhood? So go ahead and turn to Genesis 1 with me if you're not there already. We're stepping into the sixth day of creation, the final day of creation. And we read, in, beginning in verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over all the creatures. Now here in the very beginning, God created man, male and female, in his own image. Neither one has more or less of God's image than the other. We are God's design. Together, male and female were created to exercise dominion on the earth and to fill the earth with the image of God. So what is the image of God? Well, as you saw in your homework, there are a number of implications of man being created as God's image bearer. But the emphasis in the New Testament is upon reflecting God's character. Sin distorts the image of God in man so that apart from Christ, we are only self-grasping rebels, craving self-rule and seeking to be our own God. But through the gospel, 
the believer becomes a new creation who is being transformed into the image of our Savior. And we saw in the homework that the image of God as seen in Christ and in the believer's new self is one of holiness, righteousness, and humble, self-giving love. This is the image of God which we see in Christ at the cross. Jesus was the sinless sacrifice who gave himself up in our place. And that is what we get to put on display as women who have been created in the image of God and washed in the blood of Jesus. This is how we show forth the excellencies of our King. Not by grasping for ourselves or clamoring for our own rights or trusting our own design, but by dying to ourselves and pouring out the self-giving love of Jesus as we walk in holiness and righteousness of the truth. Now back in Genesis 1, there's more to see about God's design for men and women as his image bearers. First of all, notice God describes himself in the plural in verse 26, let us make man in our image. And then in the singular in verse 27, God created man in his own image. There is a hint right here of what is later unfolded in the New Testament as the Trinity. God is one, and within that oneness, there is a plurality, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Likewise, God created man, one species to bear his image, and he created man, male and female. Just as there is both oneness and plurality within the Godhead, there is oneness and plurality in his image bearers. God, in his triune oneness, in his seamless unity, reveals things about himself that we wouldn't understand otherwise. Father, Son, and Spirit are one. They are equal in deity, and yet they have different roles. For example, the Father chooses, the Son redeems, and the Spirit regenerates, working in perfect harmony for our salvation. In addition, within the Godhead, though again perfectly equal in deity, there is authority and submission. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says that God is the head of Christ. In John 6.38, Jesus said, For I have come down from the heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus submits to the Father without losing any of his deity. Rather, these different roles allow the Godhead to be displayed more fully. Likewise, man, male and female, reveal God's image in ways that we would not see if God had created only one gender. Male and female are equally created in God's image. Um, that's, that's speaking to what we talked about from the beginning, spiritual equality, and male and female are distinct from one another. And from the beginning, we're given different roles, as we'll see in Genesis 2. Go ahead and turn there. Genesis 2 gives a more detailed account of the sixth day of creation. Sin had not yet entered the world. And in verse 7, God created the man. The Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. In verse 15, God gave him work to do. The Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. 
Verses 16 and 17 then say, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Here God instructed the man and explained the consequences for disobedience. So there was no sin in the world. Man was in a beautiful garden planted by God for him as a place where he could work and exercise dominion. God himself was talking with the man and instructing him. And yet, in verse 18, the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. God himself identified something that's not good in this perfect, sinless world. Man is alone, and so God says, I will make him a helper suitable for him. Next, God brings all the animals to Adam for him to name. But verse 20 says, for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. See, an animal was not the solution for what was not good. Rather, the man needed a helper suitable for him. So God formed a woman from the man's own body, from his rib, and God brought her to the man. Then in verse 23, the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. In this sinless paradise, God's provision for the one thing that was not good was a woman. From the beginning, men and women have always been different. We were created differently in a different order, and God gave different roles from the very beginning. God gave the man work. He gave Adam commands, and in doing this, he was giving leadership to the man. And God created the woman to be a suitable helper for him. This is a reflection of the Godhead. Just as the deity of Jesus is not diminished by his submission to the Father, even so, the woman's spiritual equality is not diminished by her submission to her husband. And so we have man and woman equally created in the image of God with different roles, perfectly suited to come together as one flesh in marriage. Adam was incomplete without someone to complement him in filling the earth with God's image. Adam didn't need a pet. He didn't need another man. He needed someone who was like him and yet different. He needed Eve so that together they could display the image of God in his seamless unity, righteousness, holiness, and humble, self-giving love. And we see all of this before there's any sin in the world. It's important for us to see that. It shows us that our roles are not a consequence of sin entering the world. They're not punishment. Rather, they are God's good design from the beginning to help us display his image. So now turn to Genesis 3. After the man and woman were created in God's image, right around the corner in Genesis 3, sin entered the world. Verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, 
you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Now remember in Genesis 2, God instructed Adam. So evidently Adam had instructed Eve with what God had told him. But in Genesis 3, after Eve gives this answer which, in which she didn't accurately repeat God's command, the serpent responded by slandering God to Eve. Then in verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Eve was deceived. She ate the fruit, gave it to Adam, and he ate it too. Verse 8 says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Sin had equally devastating effects on the man and the woman. They both sought to hide themselves from the presence of the Lord. Verse 9, Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Adam and Eve proceeded to blame shift. And then in verse 16, God pronounced curses. But notice at the same time, he extended mercy. Verse 16, To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. See, because of sin, there is pain in childbirth. But don't God, miss God's mercy. There are still children. This curse wouldn't keep the woman from desiring her husband, and God, God in his mercy continued to give her the leadership of her husband. Verse 17, to Adam he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. God highlights Adam's failure to fulfill his God-given role as a man, to lead his wife, and the consequences of sin struck right at his responsibility to work and to provide. It is indeed God's mercy that the man would still work and he would still have food to eat. But after sin, the ground is cursed. Work takes toil and sweat. It's difficult. Provision is now dependent upon man's toil. No part of life from birth to the grave has been left untouched by the corruption of sin. And that includes our roles as men and women. Now notice verse 17, the curse was not only because Adam disobeyed the command about the tree. God says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. God had created Adam to lead and to protect his wife. And she was created to be his helper in filling the earth with the image of God. But in their sin, they distorted their God-given roles. Remember, they already had different roles. Sin did not introduce the different roles, but sin distorted their roles. Rather than displaying God's image, they became self-grasping and obscured the image of God in them. This distortion started at the very beginning of chapter 3 with Eve listening to the serpent. She didn't seek the Lord. She didn't seek her husband's leadership. She trusted in herself. She became self-grasping and self-reliant. She stepped out from under her husband's leadership and protection and sought to satisfy herself. She rebelled against God. At that point, God's image in Eve of righteousness 
holiness and self-giving love is unrecognizable. Now, Adam had his part. He is fully responsible as well. But in a world previously untouched by sin, Eve believed a lie rather than believing God himself. Rather than following the leader God gave her, she turned all that upside down and led her leader into sin. That's what sin does. Sin distorts our view of God, of ourselves, and of our God-given role differences. It distorts God's image in us. But why did God give us roles? It's because he has something to communicate through them, and sin seeks to destroy that through undoing the roles God has given us. Adam and Eve were the first to sin, but we are no different. Equal rights, men, gender, these aren't the problem like the world would have us think. Our problem is not that God has made a mistake in creating each person to be male or female or in assigning men and women different roles. And no problem is going to be solved by rejecting the gender or the roles that God has assigned. Now, we need to admit that the root of every problem is ultimately sin. Sin warps everything. And when people fail to acknowledge that, they are rejecting the only solution. And that is the hope of the gospel. Sin is the reason we need a savior. So let's just recap what we've seen in Genesis. Genesis 1, spiritual equality from the very beginning. Man and woman equally bearing God's image. Genesis 2, role distinctions from the very beginning, before sin entered the world. And then Genesis 3, sin entered the world, and it marred God's image in both men and women, not destroying our God-given role distinctions, but badly distorting them. Now, throughout the Old Testament, this pattern continues. There are many examples of both men and women who are equally lost in their sin, as well as examples of those who equally bear the fruit of saving faith. And role distinctions continue as well. Men were responsible for the national and religious leadership. From the garden to the final prophets before Jesus came, Adam, Noah, the patriarchs, the priests, the kings, the prophets, the pattern is men in positions of authority. And women were also active in the religious life of the nation. Miriam and Huldah were prophetesses. Deborah was a judge. Women and men alike contributed to the materials needed to meet, uh, excuse me, to make the tabernacle. But what we do not have in the Old, Testa Old Testament is significant. There were never any women, women priests, heads of tribes, or kings. Rather, we see in Proverbs 31, a God-fearing woman praised for looking well to the ways of her household, not eating the bread of idleness, but applying all of her resources to do good to those in her household and beyond. She opens her mouth in wisdom and has the teaching of kindness on her tongue. And it's important to see that this description was given by a mother to her son so he would know what to look for in a single woman who would become his wife. These are qualities which allow a woman to display God's image in every season of life. 
Now, before we move to the Gospels, it's worth noting that where men and women are living in humble faith and obedience toward God, their God-given roles are beautiful. They display God's love for his people and his people's love and submission to him. Think of, for example, of Ruth and Boaz. But when God is forgotten or rejected, when people trust themselves instead of God, that is when we see great sin committed between men and women. Just one example is Judges 19. In the time of the judges, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And it was during that dark time when God's ways were rejected that a Levite's concubine was given to the perverted men of Gibeah to be raped and abused all night long, ending in her death. Now, God's word does not condone this perversion in any way, but it also does not hide the reality that rejecting God's ways leads to gross corruption of the roles which were intended to display his image. Now, when we come to the Gospels, we find that Jesus emphasized the same pattern of spiritual equality and role distinctions. Jesus consistently emphasized a woman's spiritual equality with men in the midst of a woman-demeaning culture. In that culture, women were possessions. They were not even considered worthy to be taught God's word. They believed it was better to burn God's word than to teach it to a woman. They claimed that by their very nature, women couldn't understand spiritual truth. Men in Jesus' day normally would not allow women to even count change into their hands for fear of being contaminated by physical contact. But Jesus dramatically countered this godless view of women. Jesus used illustrations and images familiar to women. For example, when he spoke of a woman hiding leaven in her flower. Jesus revealed himself as Messiah to the woman at the well. In Mary and Martha's home, Jesus taught Mary as she sat at his feet. Completely countercultural. Jesus healed women, touched women, and allowed women to touch him. Consider the woman who wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Women supported Jesus' ministry from their own means. And after his resurrection, Jesus first revealed himself to a woman, Mary Magdalene, sending her to tell the men, despite Jewish courts not allowing women to be witnesses because they were considered liars. In Jesus' treatment of women, he showed compassion and respect in a way that was foreign to their culture. He did not demean women ever. All of this demonstrates spiritual equality between men and women. At the same time, Jesus did nothing to exalt women to a place of authority over men. And what he also never did, although he clearly could have, is to choose any women to be among the 12 apostles. That would have been the perfect time to do that, a prime opportunity to change what God so far had revealed from creation. It would have been the perfect time to establish a change for women's roles if that's what he wanted to do. But Jesus didn't change women's roles. He affirmed and continued the pattern God had established from creation. Now this pattern continues throughout the New Testament. Galatians 3.28 says, There's neither Jew nor Greek, 
There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Redemption involves no distinction between male and female. The gospel is preached to both men and women, and both are granted salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and receive spiritual gifts. Believing women are fellow heirs of the grace of life. Both men and women participate in the ministry of the gospel. And God's design continues to be for men and women to display his image through different roles. It's easy for us to see the gospel when we look at spiritual equality. And we love that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And we should. We love that men and women have an equal need for Jesus, an equal cleansing his blood, an equal share in his promises. But the gospel is on display every bit as much in the different roles God has for us so that we participate together in displaying his image. We see that in the church at large. Each believer is uniquely gifted for the building up of the body of Christ. And together as one body with many members, we get to display something of the fullness of our Savior Jesus Christ. The self-giving love of God is most clearly displayed in the church as we embrace both our spiritual equality as well as our different roles and gifts. Now turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. So first we're going to look um, at this in the church. Beginning in verse 11, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. So the setting for this teaching was the assembled church, wherever believers might gather together for teaching and worship. Following this passage in chapter 3 come the requirements for elders and deacons, which restrict these offices to men. The primary responsibility for leadership and teaching in the church is reserved for godly, qualified men. Women are not allowed to teach men or to have governing authority um, over the assembled church. However, this is not an absolute restriction on all teaching or speaking in the church by women. Scripture shows us the vital role of women in teaching women children. We find women evangelizing and praying. Priscilla is an example of a woman who served alongside her husband, privately taking Apollos aside to explain to him the way of God more accurately. But women exercise these roles under the authority and teaching of qualified men leading the church. And Paul explains the reason for male leadership in 1 Timothy 2, beginning in verse 13. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. See, our role differences are rooted in the order of creation. In creating man first, God was teaching that men should take responsibility for leadership in relation to women. Verse 14, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. See, the fall of Adam and Eve shows that the neglect of the divine pattern of male leadership 
puts men and women in a more vulnerable position and leads to transgression. By basing his argument on the order of creation and the way in which Adam and Eve sinned, it's clear that this command applies to all churches for all time. Now, there are other passages that help explain and expand what we've seen here, but we'll summarize the New Testament teaching on the roles of men and women in the church like this. Godly, qualified men have the primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership, shepherding, teaching, equipping, and protecting the body of Christ. So elders and deacons are offices filled by men. Men oversee all the ministries of the church. Wellspring is overseen by an elder, and there's protection in that. These leaders have the incredible responsibility to display Christ-like shepherding care and loving servant leadership toward the body. And all believers, men and women, are to submit to them, to honor and affirm their leadership as they equip us for service that builds up the church. God has given everyone in the church many opportunities to serve and participate in the gospel mission as we labor under the godly qualified leadership he provides. And in this, God is displaying his loving care and leadership for his people. <clears throat> and this is how we, his people, trust him and follow his lead. Well, that brings us to marriage. Marriage is where spiritual equality and role distinction were first seen back in Genesis 1 and 2. And what we saw there is still true. Men and Man and woman equally created in God's image and displaying that image through different roles. When God brings a man to, and woman together in marriage, they become one. Together they get to display God's image in a unique way. Now we've already talked about roles in marriage in several Wellspring lessons this year. <clears throat> you might remember from the Titus 2 lesson and our survey of the home lesson, we talked about Titus 2 and Ephesians 5. So we're going to just, I'm going to just um, talk about those briefly without turning to the passages here. But if you'll remember, in Titus 2, we saw the importance of a woman's godliness in her marriage, loving her husband, being subject to her own husband. In Ephesians 5, we've seen God's beautiful design for marriage to display Christ and the church. <clears throat> a biblical woman is not one who sets aside her brain and her abilities. Rather, out of devotion to Christ, the married woman lines herself up under her husband's leadership stewarding her time, her resources, her abilities to be a suitable helper for her husband. That displays God's image. How that plays out will vary from marriage to marriage, but the general principle is that two become one, each dying to themselves to display the image of Christ, his holiness, righteousness, and humble self-giving love as each fulfills the unique role God has designed. And all of that is for his glory. And at the same time, we are still sinners, aren't we? If you're married, you're married to a sinner. And there are certainly times when this is very difficult. But for those who are born again, displaying God's image doesn't depend on the kind of person to whom we're married or even being married at all. 1 Peter 3 shows that a godly wife displays God's image even to a disobedient or unbelieving husband 
through God's role for her as a wife to submit with a quiet and gentle spirit. Now, how can we do that? It's all because God saved us out of being self-grasping, and now we get to give ourselves away to display Jesus. And that makes submission and service a privilege. It's an expression of what God has done in us. It doesn't display his image to be controlling or self-grasping. As believers, our treasure is Jesus, and he frees us from slavery to self to serve him. And if we're married, we do that by submitting to our husband as far as obedience to Christ allows. So we've seen that scripture is clear from beginning to end that God has made men and women with spiritual equality and role distinctions. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that's all so that we can better display his image. And given that, let's circle back around to where we began. What is biblical womanhood? How does God want a believing woman to display his image? How do we best shine forth his holiness, righteousness, and self-giving love? As we embrace the role God has given us under his ordained leadership, our lives will have varying priorities depending on our season of life. But in general, women in every season of life are called to faithfulness in concentric circles of responsibilities, much like we find in the Wellspring Disciplines. So go ahead and turn to page five in your notes if you're not there already. You can see that God's word says a lot to women and about women on the front and back of this page. These pages compile, compile a good number of, um, of those references of the things that God has to say about women and to women and organizes them according to the Wellspring Disciplines. Now, I want to give you a couple of encouragements before we go through this. First, these are listed. I listed a lot of things so that we can get a sense of the breadth of what God has called us to be. There's no way we can dig in and unpack what each one of these means today. And much of what is here, you've already studied in Wellspring. For others, you can dig in and study for yourself. Um, and see what God has to say about these things, and you can find a godly older woman to help you grow in living it out. But this is just a survey today. Second, these are taken from passages about women in different seasons of life, particularly when we get to Discipline 2 and Discipline 3. How this looks in our own lives will vary significantly from season to season. It will vary from person to person. But the principles are the same. Though not all of the things listed may apply to us now, this can help us see what God may be preparing for us in another season or a way in which we can encourage women who are in a different season than we are. Also remember that this is describing ways that we as women reflect the image of our Savior. In no way is this a list of works that we do in order to earn God's favor or that we accomplish in our own strength. Instead, this is supposed to just bring us some clarity and definition to what it is we should be prioritizing as we pursue sanctification, as we run after the holiness of life that Jesus purchased for us at the cross. And that must always be anchored in humble reliance upon God's word and his spirit working by his grace 
to make us more like his son. That is what puts Christ on display and shows the world around us the rightness of God's design for us as women. So let's look at this outline together. Uh, Now, since we're talking about biblical womanhood, you'll notice that the disciplines have just been paraphrased a little bit. Discipline one, a biblical woman shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God, and her character will reflect her devotion to God. She's a woman who fears the Lord and rejects other fears. Her hope is in God. She continues in the faith. She's above reproach. She's joyful and loving. She, ha- she walks in holiness of life. She is self-restrained. She's trustworthy, diligent, prudent, industrious, sensible, compassionate, generous, kind, wise, pure. She is devoted to prayer. She is gentle, peaceable, teachable, and respectful. In addition, um, the biblical woman's adornment will reflect her devotion to the Lord. Inwardly, she'll cultivate an inner beauty that is precious in the sight of the Lord, adorning herself with a gentle and quiet spirit, with purity, and by means of good works which shine forth the gospel's work in her. Her heart for the Lord will also be seen outwardly in how she dresses, not vainly seeking the admiration of others through things like clothing, jewelry, what she does with her hair, but with proper clothing that is modest and discreet. The biblical woman's speech will also reflect her devotion to Jesus, not gossiping, not being contentious, especially in her home, not seeking to exercise authority over men in the church, but rather being teachable under the leadership of her church and her husband and speaking with wisdom and kindness and teaching what is good. In her home, with her children and grandchildren, as well as discipling women in the church and sharing the gospel. Now, in all of these, we can't, we, we can't leave behind our motive because the whole it all began with being a woman who fears the Lord. In all of these things, our aim is to please the Lord. It, this is not something, we have to just guard ourselves. This is not something where we're going to puff ourselves up or make ourselves look good. This should carry no sense of self-righteousness or thinking that we're better than others. No, every time we die to ourselves, it's an opportunity to worship God to offer ourselves to him as living sacrifices for his glory in all that we are and all that we do. And that's expressed first in our household. So let's look at discipline too. The biblical woman is concerned for those in her house and ministers to them with her heart fixed on God and his word. If she's married, that begins with her husband. Her husband is her priority. And she acts in such a way that his heart can trust her. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She conducts herself in such a way as to enhance his reputation with others. She loves him, respects him. She seeks to please him and submits to him with great love and devotion as unto the Lord, modeling her submission after the church's submission to Jesus Christ. Now toward her children... She's faithful to love them, to bring them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord with kindness and wisdom. Toward the needy and her family, particularly widows, she's faithful to assist them. She cares for others in her household, 
and she is diligent and industrious in seeing to the needs of her household, present and future. She is a wise steward of her time, abilities, and resources, and she uses her home as a platform for gospel ministry, showing hospitality to strangers, serving the saints, opening up her home for the use of the church. Discipline three, then, is with a heart fixed on God and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority, a biblical woman steps into the church and every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. As we said in Discipline 2, this might include opening her home for service to the church and other believers. It might include assisting those in distress, again, sharing the gospel, teaching and training women in the church, loving and caring for children, meeting needs, showing compassion and generosity, being devoted to every good work, abounding with deeds of charity and kindness, working hard to serve and help the church, sharing struggles in the cause of the gospel, or contributing from her resources. We get to humbly yield ourselves to the Lord and gladly minister wherever we have the ability and opportunity to serve, putting the glorious image of our Savior on display. There is nothing demeaning about God's design for women like the world would have us think. Rather, being a blood-bought daughter of the King of Kings is an inestimably high calling and privilege. It is not dependent upon our age, stage, looks, family, ability, or culture. It is what God has created us to be in Christ. But we can never be this kind of woman by our own effort, in our own strength. We will only display the image of our Savior as biblical women as we look to him. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. Where do we behold the glory of the Lord? In his word. It is by faithfully drawing near to God through his word and beholding him in his word that we are transformed to be more like him. This is where we find everything we need to grow as faithful, biblical women so that our lives bring glory to him. All right, let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for the great privilege of being here together with your daughters. Lord, your word is rich. Um, Lord, quite honestly, it's overwhelming all that you have to say to us as women. Lord, clearly you have not neglected revealing exactly um, what you want us to know, who you want us to be, and giving us every provision we need to humbly and dependently grow to display your image as the women you've made us to be. Oh Lord, I pray for each one of us. Oh Father, let us just each draw near to you to love you better, to seek you with every question we have, with every struggle, with every sense in which this feels overwhelming or um, beyond us. Lord, it is. It is beyond us. So teach us to be women who depend upon your resources to be the women you've made us to be. I pray for the time and discussion. Lord, I pray that those would be rich, vibrant discussions in which each woman is spurred on in her walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.